question that's on all our minds these days, when will this end? And we have some news on that front that we'll be talking about on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the Cleveland.com podcast about the coronavirus. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn on the wire with some of the smartest people I know, editors Laura Johnston, Chris Warnowski, and Jane Cahoon. Does it help at all if I remind you that we're all working on the biggest story of our careers, even if we're all living like cave people? <laughs> this is Laura Johnston. Um, I've been reading Little House on the Prairie with my daughter, and sometimes I feel like we're pioneers. I'll buy it. Uh, I'll be it with high speed internet. Um, it's just because it's the four of us, day in and day out. Like she even make, made some cookies with uh, my husband from the Laura Ingalls cookbook. Wow, that's so in character. <laughs> <laughs> well. Take solace. This has to end someday. It it will end. Let's start the podcast. When will the coronavirus peak in Ohio? That's the question of the day, the hour, and the minute anymore. And we have three very different predictions with, I suspect, a fourth to come. My favorite is the one out of the University of Washington, which says the peak demand for hospital space will come tomorrow with death in Ohio peaking Sunday. But the Cleveland Clinic has a much more depressing vision, and the people who have locked us up in our homes, the governor and the state health director, have yet a third. State House Editor Jane Cahoon, what did Ohio Health Director Amy Acton say Monday about what to expect? Dr. Acton, who, by the way, promised sometime this week to school us all on Modeling 101, said Monday that she thought the peak was coming late this month or early May. And then she got emotional and made yet another plea for all of us to continue doubling down and staying home and social distancing, saying we were really making a difference beyond even what she'd hoped. She said things like, you're moving mountains and you're, you're saving lives. Yeah, they're all so afraid that we'll misbehave. It's like this condescending attitude they all have. If we tell them too much, they'll just go outside <laughs> and spread the virus. Tom Mihaljevic, the CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, was on MSNBC Friday, though, and he had the most depressing prediction. What did he say? Well, first of all, I'm glad you pronounced his last name so that I don't have to. <laughs> he actually said he thought the, the disease would peak in Ohio sometime between mid-May and mid-June, with a gradual decline in the number of cases toward mid to late July, which totally depressed everyone, as you said. And confused people, too, especially since Amy Acton said that they've been relying on modeling from both the clinic and Ohio State. Yeah, but neither of those two are showing their cards. Chris Warnowski, we have the University of Washington not being vague at all. They have shown their cards, and they say tomorrow, April 8th. What's the deal? As late as a week ago, the University of Washington was saying it would be a bit later, but their latest projection doesn't just show a flattened curve. It shows almost no curve. Well, these, you know, these things do change as a flood of new information comes in and, and, you know, maybe one state isn't reporting the same way as another state or different county boards of health are giving information at a different rate than others. But, you know, the, the two things that change the most in the University of Washington's uh, projections were first, the early data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention suggested that 11% of coronavirus patients might require hospitalization. And their latest data say that that might be closer to like 5 or 7%. And the second thing was, is their model initially used data from 
the first major COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan, China, to gauge the effects of social distancing measures. And data from seven other locations in Italy and Spain suggests that measures like those in Ohio and that states like us took actually have a more significant impact than initially anticipated. That's interesting about the, the, the lower percentage needing hospitalization. We hear tell there's been a spirited debate on the state level about which projection to go with. So I expect that tomorrow when Amy Acton promises to release new projections, they'll be different. Jane, our numbers guru, Rich Exner, has noticed that the number of new cases showing up in hospitals is not climbing exponentially. We seem to have tapered off a good bit in the number of new cases being hospitalized which is a useful number because it's so specific. If you get sick enough of this virus, you pretty much have to go to the hospital. There's no fudging like there is with testing. So what is Rich seeing? Well, well, first of all, I'd like to note that the the number of total confirmed cases increased by 10% on Monday, which was the second smallest percentage increase since the second day of the outbreak on March 10th. Uh, And the smallest increase was 8%, and that was on Sunday. But to your question about hospitalizations, on Monday, the state reported about 1,200 total hospitalizations to date. Sunday, the number was closer to 1,100. On Saturday, it was closer to 1,000. On Friday, it was closer to 900. And on Thursday, it was about 800. So it's not, it's, it's increasing by about the same amount and not, not hugely. And percentage-wise of cases, it's pretty... Pretty bad. So I'll, I guess what I'm pointing out is Rich isn't seeing that enormous ramp up of the curve. He's right. seeing a pretty steady and slow, which, again, it gets back to we're all living like cave people and, and not going out. And so we're doing what they hoped. We should know pretty quickly whether the University of Washington is right. They've said tomorrow. So let's take a look on Thursday to see if we're scaling down. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are Ohioans following the stay-at-home order issued by Governor Mike DeWine? How do we compare in Ohio to other states? Laura Johnston, the New York Times got hold of anonymous cell phone data showing how people are moving about the country during the crisis. How do we look in Ohio? Yeah, this is a really cool map, and we look really good in Ohio. It shows that Ohioans' average travel dropped below two miles a day by March 24th. That was in line with the start of the state's official stay-at-home order which went into effect March 23rd. You know, I'm an East Coast kid. I grew up in New Jersey, and I've heard my whole life from people outside New Jersey the jokes about how rude we all are in New Jersey. And I've also heard my whole life about the wholesome Midwest. I've lived here for 24 years, and I really do appreciate the decency and friendliness of people here. But this data does show something special about this place. When Ohioans were asked by someone they trust, the governor, to help others avoid getting sick by staying home, They did it like almost nowhere else in the country. What areas were the worst by comparison? And please don't say New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) Not New Jersey. All the Great Lakes essentially stayed home. Uh, So you see this this spot around the Great Lakes where it's like, wow, these people really listen. Um, Other parts of the country, including southern states like Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, parts of Florida, as well as the Great Plains states, Normal travel patterns largely continued the week of March 23rd, and that's when the data is from, from the week of March 23rd. Jane Cahoon, you're from Ohio. Chris Wernowski, you're from St. Louis. Does it surprise you that people in the Ohio area are doing everything right? Have you always known that the Midwest people are so community-minded, Chris? No. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, look, we're from cities and, you know, it's, it's, it, I think we've lost, you know, I think one of the good things about this is I think we're getting to sort of know who we live around and I think we're becoming a little more community minded. So maybe there will be some, some mindfulness about our Midwestern nature uh, that comes out of all of this. But you and I both lived in Florida. And so it doesn't, I don't think it surprises you any more than it surprises me that Florida is not behaving whatsoever. What's different? Why, you know, you, you have the experience of the Midwest, you have the experience of a place that's not doing it. What's, what differentiates it for you? Well, and it's worth noting that, I mean, Missouri has not necessarily been the greatest actor in this whole thing either. Their first, their first statewide stay at home order went into effect yesterday. <laughs> so, so, you okay. know, they, the, the two urban centers there, Kansas city and St. Louis have been, uh, they've had stay at home recommendations and travel recommendations since the, since mid March, but the, the state is largely libertarian and, you know, in, in its sort of, in, in its governance, Florida is kind of the same way, you know, I mean, they were, refusing to close beaches. I mean, my parents still live down there or retired down there. And, and, you know, you, I mean, you saw anybody saw that picture of how they left it up to the counties to decide whether to close beaches. And there were like two cops sitting on four wheelers on the County line and across the County line, it's just a busy beach. And John Oliver made use of that photo in his hilarious. Right. And that's, it's and that's very very much in line with Florida. You know, Florida is is certainly a unique animal when it comes to the rest of the country. All right, but Jane, there's something special here. I mean, Ohio is doing it unlike a lot of places in the country. What do you think it is? Well, first I'd like to note that I think there are a lot of East Coast transplants and retired people in Florida. And <laughs> <laughs> the New Jersey thing strikes again. <laughs> and I just think in general, we're pretty compliant people. We we know how to follow directions, unlike many of those East Coast enlightened type of people who think <laughs> they always know best. I think really, I think the issue here is that our I feel like our state government's response to this has largely been apolitical. And and I think that that really does say something like there's That's a great point. And you and you if you look at look, I, I have friends who are as bleeding hard as it gets. And and they are giving credit to Mike DeWine and, and his administration. And and it's something that I never thought I would see. You know, if you if you would talk to them a month ago, he he was, you know, somebody that they would never, ever compliment. And it, And it's very different. And so I think you're seeing the difference between a leadership that governs all people as opposed to, you know, framing it through partisan goggles. God, that's a great point. That's a great point. Laura, some states didn't even issue stay-at-home orders, so you can't really blame those residents for traveling about. Where are they? So like Chris said, Missouri uh, just issued its on Friday. Alabama also joined them. And that was 10 days after the map started measuring travel. A handful of states, including Iowa, which is a Midwestern state, and the Dakotas still haven't done it. Yeah, it's really dumb. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are prisoners in the only federal prison in Ohio, Elkton, in danger from the coronavirus? And did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine just show up President Donald Trump yet again? 
DeWine continues to drop news bombs in his daily briefings and show leadership, and he did it again Monday when he said he was sending the National Guard to the federal prison at Elkton. Chris Warnowski, why is the state National Guard needed in a federal prison? Well, there have been some deaths there, and there are people who are sick there. And it was actually very kind of, it was stunning to hear this yesterday when they were talking about it, because they said that I believe they were operating at about half the capacity for medical staff within the prison. And so, you know, here you have a global pandemic that is really hitting concentrated populations in places like jails and nursing home pretty hard. And yet you had a federal prison that is running at half capacity for its ability to respond to something like this. And so to hear it, it's it's odd because as somebody who has covered court for a long time and covered crime for a long time, it's you don't ever really hear state officials talking about sending people into a federal jail. I mean, it's 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 really kind of unheard of. And it was kind of stunning to to hear that happen. So the Bureau of Prisons did end up actually inviting the National Guard after after DeWine sent him in to do a visit, but they won't be armed and they won't do security, right? Correct. It's going to be, you know, there it is, as as the governor stressed yesterday, it is a strictly medical mission. They're not in there to, you know, serve as corrections officers per se. DeWine went out of his way to really make the Ohio tie to the federal prison. That 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 he it almost like it was like he had to justify it to the residents of Ohio. What what do you think that was about? I mean, first, what were the connections he was talking about? Well, I mean, I think you have to look at it as you know the those. I mean, a lot of the people who are in that jail are Ohio people. The people that work in that jail are Ohio people, and it's on you know land in the state of Ohio. I mean, it's while it is federal government property, you know, it is the people that work in that jail come back out into our communities and they shop in our stores and they do all that. You know, it's not like they go to some duty free shop in some federal (laughs) federal netherland that doesn't exist within the borders of the state of Ohio. I'm going to lob up a volleyball here for you. We've talked (laughs) a few times about the wine stepping up when the Trump administration falters. Is this another example? Why couldn't the Federal Prisons Bureau take care of its own house. I don't know. You should call them and see if they'll talk to you about it (laughs) because they certainly would not talk to us about it. We tried to get Justin Herdman on the phone to talk about it. He wouldn't. And uh, because there, you know, there was a request that the justice department stop sending prisoners there. And we tried to talk to the Bureau of prisons and they wouldn't talk about it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it does seem like, again, it's, it's, you know, you, you look at, this leadership vacuum that we have at the top part of our country. And, and you see that, you know, the way that sort of effective leadership happens is when somebody like the line takes control and just says, okay, we're going to deal with it. It's a, it's just a remarkable story for the reasons you mentioned. Hey, is this where um, our infamous County commissioner, Jimmy DeMora is doing his time? It is where he's doing his time, and um, we will know if he will continue doing his time, I guess, sometime this month, because he has a video hearing. He's still working his way through the appeals process, and um, and so maybe he might get out. Well, and he'd be really vulnerable to the coronavirus with all his I health think issues. So. Jane Cahoon, DeWine also made reference to his coming decisions, I think, today on state prisons. He was a, a bit cryptic, but not completely. So what can we expect? 
Well, the governor acknowledged the reality of this, that after keeping the coronavirus out of the state's prison for a while through all the measures they were taking, it's now there. We've got 10 inmates at two different prisons, Pickaway and Marion, testing positive, as well as nearly 30 staff people. So DeWine did say that today he'll have more information on this, but but that he's basically considering pushing for the release of more nonviolent offenders beyond the 38 people that he's already recommended that judges consider releasing. Now, when, when he releases people, it, it, it's it's to avoid the coronavirus. We got a question uh, today from somebody saying, hey, if he releases people with coronavirus, aren't you violating HIPAA when you name them? But this isn't just releasing sick people. It's releasing people to ease the the potential for a coronavirus spread in the prison, right? Right. And, and people who could be vulnerable to it, not not necessarily ones that I think the ones who have it are being isolated within the prisons. And treated. OK, it's this week in the CLE. Why can't Ohio break down coronavirus infections by race, as we have seen elsewhere? How can we tell whether specific populations in Ohio are harder hit than others? Ohio Health Director Amy Acton offered up the demographic data she has yesterday to help us understand who is being infected, but she also explained why that data is not very useful. Jen Cahoon, your team covered this. What was she talking about? Well, much of the state's data on this comes from hospital intake forms, and many patients just elect not to disclose their racial and ethnic backgrounds on those forms. So as a result, a a full quarter of the state's positive COVID tests Officials don't know the, the patient's racial background. And in about 40% of the cases, they don't know the patient's ethnic background. So that really limits the state's ability to assess whether there are disparities in this, in this disease. Okay, so with incomplete data, we can't really rely on it. I get it. But what, what we do have, does it match up? So first, what's the breakdown of the infections by race? The 51% of Ohioans diagnosed were white, 18% were black, 2% were Asian American or Pacific Islander, and 1% were multiracial. And by ethnicity, 2% of the positive cases were Hispanic or Latino. So what's the breakdown on deaths? On deaths, 61% of the 142 Ohioans who who are confirmed to have died from this were white, 10% were black, and 27% were unknown. And by ethnicity, 1% of the deaths were Hispanic or Latino. So that doesn't really match up to the Ohio population real closely. What's the Ohio population breakdown? So the overall population is 81% white, 13% black, 3.9% Hispanic or or Latino, and 2.5% Asian American. Based on what we can see, it looks like African-Americans are getting hit harder than their population numbers would show. But again, we really don't know. Right. As with most of this data, it's, it's flawed because of limited reporting. It's this week in the CLE. Can I get the coronavirus from my dog? Can I get the coronavirus from my cat? Laura Johnston, I thought we had dealt with this in several popular stories that put this away. But now a tiger in the Bronx Zoo has the coronavirus. I don't know what to think. How does a zoo tiger get the virus? Who gets within six feet of a tiger? And a tiger's a big cat. So if a big cat can get it, can a little cat? 
So have you not seen Tiger King on Netflix? Because all those people <laughs> are getting within six foot of a, of a big cat. Anyway, I guess there was a zookeeper at the Bronx Zoo who was actively sick and shedding the virus. And that's what the USDA says. And a bunch of big cats at that zoo got infected. And, and they're and, coughing like people. The dry right. Cough. And so they just tested the one tiger. But there's like some lions and tigers. No bears, as far as I know. Uh, they also believe. Um but this has happened with a couple of domestic animals. They've gotten coronavirus, including dogs in Hong Kong and a domestic cat in Belgium. Experts stress that while there is some evidence that you can get uh, give coronavirus to your pet, there's no evidence that pet can give it to you. Of course, I would like to add the caveat here that research on the coronavirus is always changing. And the disease originally came from an animal, as far as we know. So I, I am not. How gonna... does that, but how does that make any sense? If if this is transferred by the droplets that you cough and it was transferred to a tiger through the droplets that zookeepers cough, it seems preposterous to me that the tiger coughing back can infect other people. I mean, is there some evidence that somehow once it gets into the tiger, it 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 changes? I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, we got bad information for two months on masks. Are we getting bad information on pets because they fear that we'll all go out and abandon our dogs and cats instead of taking steps to to protect them from this thing? I mean, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to it, but it, it does make you really want to protect your pet and make sure your pet does not get coronavirus. I mean, social distancing for dogs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you shouldn't be petting anyone else's dog right now. Yeah, I know. But when your dog's outside, it's sniffing wherever the other dog That's has true. been. I, I don't, this is, but I, I guess my point is we've done a couple of stories in which experts say, yeah, don't worry about it. And you can't get it off your pet hair. And I'm questioning everything we've been told by public health experts because they've changed their stories a couple of times. This seems like one that needs a good dose of skepticism. We should do some more reporting on, I guess. I agree. I would just like to figure out how I can get a a, a test. You know, they're testing tigers now. <laughs> Why aren't they testing? <laughs> like, right. Come on, man! Like, what, what the hell? Yeah. Would you put a Would you put a mask on your dog, Chris Wernowski? Um. You put you put shoes if, on your dog. If you do, can I, we see a video of you doing hey, that? I, think that I have never successfully gotten shoes on my dog as much as I have tried. <laughs> Every tried. year I go down the same road, but no, no. Um. He's he's old, so I think he would technically be at risk. He's sixteen, so so maybe I should be taking more proactive measures. Yeah, I I just I I think we need more information on this. This is a whole new issue. It's this week in the CLE. Most of the plans for making my own coronavirus mask require elastic, but it's sold out everywhere. What do I do, Laura Johnston? There has to be a substitute to using elastic that goes over the ears to hold on masks. What is it? Of course, there are all sorts of ingenious swaps. You can use women's stretchy hair elastics. You can use shoelaces or ribbon and just tie it around your ears. Anything that you can think of, really, bias tape, rickrack. You can be very creative and fashionable in your mask making. I made a bunch of masks myself without elastic. I had paracord, and, and I thought that making it with ties made for a tighter fit. But our step-by-step instructions call for elastic, not ties. I wonder if we need an update. Sure, why not? Videographer John Panna already made a mask with a bed sheet, so let's go. Yeah, he did one without sewing. 
Um, and our social media editor posted a great hack for people who have elastic in their masks. But when the elastic stretches out, it's a problem. What's the trick? So the trick is the binder clip, and we have a video of that, too. You just kind of stretch, rather than around your ears, you go all the way to the back of your head. Although my question about that is, with the surgical mask, if you, which I think that's what the video shows, you're not really supposed to be re- reusing those. So like, let's just keep that to the fabric mask. Okay, there you have it, the daily installment of our conversation about coronavirus masks. We should take a page from World War II when people planted victory gardens to have fresh produce. We can call them victory masks. No? Okay. <laughs> Maybe not. It's this week in the CLE. Another podcast comes to an end. You guys have any final thoughts? We're a little bit early. I'd like to say something. This is Jane Cahoon. I'd just like to note that Wisconsin is actually holding an election today because <laughs> unlike Mike DeWine, their governor was not able to stop it. So I think it's going to be interesting in the coming weeks to see how their uptick in cases compares to ours. Well, you know, Laura Johnston, one of the theories that we've had about why Michigan is quadrupling our cases is because they had their primary the week before we did and spread it through the polling places. Wisconsin may prove it out. if. Wisconsin starts to take off because of this, I think it'll be conclusive proof that well, this would happen in Michigan. That's really interesting. And you're right. But the thing is, the difference is that this is in the middle where everybody's very aware of the virus and what you can do to protect yourself and cleaning hand sanitizer. In the Michigan case, since it was March 10th, we really weren't thinking like this. And they had all the regular rallies leading up to it. So I I mean, it'll be interesting to see if they see a bump, but I don't know that they had all of the rigmarole leading up to the election in the same way. Well, if they act like the Westsiders I hear about, they're not going to be wearing any masks anyway. (laughs) Oh, you're going to give us a bad rap. All right. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on this podcast, please send them to us through our text messaging accounts. Details are on cleveland.com. Thanks to Laura, Chris, and Jane. And thank you for spending another half hour with us. We'll be back tomorrow with another conversation. 